Father, as we come into your presence today and as we've been acknowledging, Lord, that we can trust your love, we can find security in you, we have many reasons to rejoice, to give glory to you, Lord, because you have shown yourself to be faithful. As we look back on this year, Lord, surely we, as your people, have seen many, many evidences of your grace and your mercy, your goodness, uh, that you have upheld us, Lord, that you have brought us to the point where we are today. Now we pray, Father, that you might, in our moments that follow, that you might, Lord, give us a word that will uh, be that which gives us direction, helps us as we look forward. We pray that you would use, Lord, your word this day to impact our hearts and that you might, Lord, continue to create within us a desire to know it, to read it, and to be satisfied about satisfied in you as we nourish ourselves in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I must say one of the highlights of the Advent season for me, and I would say probably for my wife as well, was the privilege earlier this past week in visiting Pat and Lyra Nieto in the hospital on the maternity ward. And in their room, we had the wonderful privilege of seeing for the first time almost about a little bit more than one day old, little Sarah Nieto. And she is indeed a precious, beautiful little girl. And there, as we looked at her, it's obvious as you see the small size of this little baby that you know the parents, you know that the doctors who are examining her, they're all expecting little Sarah to grow. They are expecting her to increase in her height and in her weight. And if she does not show signs of this increase in her uh, sort of normal processes of growth, then obviously the doctor is going to become quite concerned. He'll order tests. He will seek to try to understand why. Because anytime you see an infant, you say to yourself, oh, wow, this child uh, hopefully was going to grow. It's not going to remain that size forever. As I thought about that wonderful privilege this past week, I have also begun to think in my own heart and life as a pastor that I look for and I anticipate and I long for fellow believers and myself to grow into maturity as children of God. And that along with the elders of our church, I long to see the members of our church exhibiting clear indicators that there are that there is spiritual growth and development taking place among the people of our flock here. Let me take a moment and encourage you to look into your bulletin under the order of service. You'll notice at the bottom of the page is our church mission statement. Please understand that doesn't just apply one day a year. That's really what we're about as a church. And I'd like us to read this aloud together as we acknowledge this is the mission of what we are about as a church. Let's read it together. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples that treasure, live out, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We as a church are committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ. We are not committed to just making church attenders. People who come once a week, they sit, they act sort of like, you know, got, uh, they, look, they look calm and collected. But we are, as a church are committed to what Jesus commissioned his followers to do in Matthew 28. And that is, he said, I want you to make disciples 
Disciple, by the way, means learner. I'm going to make disciples, not just converts, and not just people who are admirers of Jesus. A learner. Jesus went on to explain in John chapter 15, using the metaphor of a vine and branches, that he is the vine and we are the branches. He went on to explain that God, the gardener, prunes those branches, cuts them off at at significant places in order to bring about the, the, the branch bearing more fruit. And Jesus went on to say that God is looking for fruitfulness in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus insisted that his father would be glorified when his followers bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples, John 15, 8. Jesus expects and Jesus longs for growth and fruitfulness in the spiritual life of his followers. Now, as we conclude this year, 2013, we have just a few days left, and we're about to begin a brand new calendar year. I want to set before us a challenge for every single one of us, and the challenge is this. How important of a priority is your spiritual growth moving forward? How important is that priority in your life? If Jesus said the Father is glorified by seeing more tremendous amount of fruit from his disciples, to what extent then is your growth and your spiritual development as a Christian, to what extent is that a priority in your life as you move forward? And what do you plan to do this year that will help to promote spiritual growth in your life that might be different than what you did last year or maybe the same? Turn with me in your scriptures this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to consider those verses. I'm sorry I didn't write down the page number or the pew number, pew pew Bible page number. 1 Peter chapter 1. You can look in your table of contents if you can't find the book. It's toward the right-hand portion of your Bible. You can go to Revelation and back up, go through the epistles of John and then Keep going and you'll run into 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. Then he quotes... A verse from Isaiah 40. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now this morning in this sermon, I want to answer three questions, and I basically have three points in your notes if you're following along. First thing I want to answer, the first question is, what obstacles or hindrances need to be removed from our lives so that we can grow spiritually in 2014? What obstacles or hindrances must be removed? Secondly, what are the dynamics of spiritual growth that we need to understand so that our growth is in keeping with 
God's design. What do we need to understand? And thirdly, what healthy habits, if we were to develop them in the year of 2014, would help to advance us toward the goal of spiritual growth? So I hope you're following along. Here we are with point number one. Remove obstacles and hindrances to spiritual growth. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Peter wrote this letter to equip his fellow believers for the hardships that they were beginning to face right at that moment and they had perhaps been experiencing for a brief period of time. What was this problem? What were these difficulties? What were these trials that were coming their way, the hardships? It's very clear. I've noted it in at least seven or eight verses. In verse 6 of chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 14, 16, 17, chapter 4, 12 to 19, and chapter 5, verse 10, they are suffering as followers of Jesus Christ. Persecution. It was the time of Nero, and the Romans were going after the Christians. And so Peter as a person who earlier in his life can remember as an immature believer, here's Peter shrinking back in fear. Here is Peter denying his Lord, not once, not twice, three times in the face of what he thought was potentially the fact that he himself might be put to death. Denying even new Christ. So Peter looks back on that event and he says, Listen, he knows for sure and he is convinced that his fellow sufferers need what he has now received and what has really helped him tremendously from that moment as a young believer who denied his Savior to now facing persecution himself and he's trying to encourage others. He says what they need is to grow and mature in their faith. It's the last verse of 2 Peter 3.18, by the way. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's his passion. And so he helps these Christians understand that, uh, that the followers of Christ must grow and they must develop their spiritual maturity in order to endure times in which when they do what's good and they're actually behaving in ways that are commendable, they are being slandered. They're being ridiculed for doing the right things. In a situation in which they were doing those things that were appropriate and good behavior, they were being reviled for doing what was right. And Peter knows that in these kind of situations, in order to withstand the storm of what they're about to go into, they've got to have their roots go deep. I was searching online this week and I came across an article written by some forestry website down in Florida uh, describing the types of trees that do well in light of being hit with hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. And the good on to say in this article that certain trees have inherent characteristics that enable them to actually survive quite well when a hurricane brings those winds and brings the salt water at them. And they listed a number of them mostly due and partly due to the fact they have an extensive, deep root system. And so they talked about three, four trees, oak trees, palm trees, obviously, cypress trees, two different kinds of cypress trees tend to do very, very well in withstanding 
hurricane-related winds. Why? Because they combine the deep root systems with a low center of gravity. And so over a period of time, those shallow rooted trees are going to be easily uprooted, and uh, they're not going to survive because when the heavy rains come, it saturates that soil, and those little roots are just going to come right up, and boom, there goes the tree. They also talked about other uh, deep-rooted trees are longleaf pine and various other ones, whatever. The point is this. In order to withstand storms and high winds, trees, if they're going to survive and thrive, must develop that strong root system that's below the ground. And similarly, in order to withstand the storms and trials that we as believers are definitely going to face in one way or another, it may not be out-and-out persecution, but it may come in many different shapes and forms and sizes. In order to withstand that, we need hearts that are firmly anchored to Jesus Christ. We need to be people whose hearts are deeply embedded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thereby flourishing and deep with strong no matter what kind of winds of storms and challenges come our way. The problem is that anemic... Weak, malnourished Christians are easily uprooted and easily, oftentimes, stunted in their growth. And it leaves them in a situation in which their circumstances, i.e. the storm that comes their way, the storm oftentimes then leaves them discouraged and disheartened. And their surroundings are therefore prevalent in what is dictating what's going on in their heart and life, rather than what's going on deep below the surface and what's going on in their hearts. Rather than growing deeper in Christ and developing bonds of love and support among fellow believers, Peter had begun to see happening in his generation among his fellow believers that their hearts had little to no spiritual appetite for the gospel, that their circumstances were difficult, and rather than digging deep into the gospel and feeding their minds and souls on those truths, they began to just sort of survive day by day. And they began to look to other people to meet their needs. And the result was what? If you read this text carefully in the first chapter, beginning of chapter 2, the result is the fruit of outward relational sin. They had broken relationships. It was ugly. It was not a good sight. They were not growing closer. They were growing further apart from each other. And... Rather than growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in times of trouble, these believers were growing in divisiveness and in discouragement. So what Peter does is this. Look at chapter chapter 1, verse 23. He goes back to the fundamentals. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of how God has brought them alive in Christ. He reminds them of, of the cost it took for them to become alive in Christ. It was a redeemer who, who was uh, slain for them. Not, not just a swiping of a credit card that redeemed them. It was the precious blood of, the, of their Savior, Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. Then he goes on to say in verse 23 that they were born again by the living and abiding Word of God. Those same scriptures teach that spiritual maturity, which is always evidenced by obedience and holiness of life, is God's will for his people, verses 13 to 16 of chapter 1. And so if we're going to advance in our spiritual development, Peter says we must remove any known obstacles or hindrances to that growth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, in light of the powerful work of God in your heart in bringing you to faith in Christ, 
into seeing that you are now a child of God, no longer son of wrath, you're now a son of God. He says, in light of that powerful working of God, which was paid for by the precious Lamb of Jesus Christ, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In order for growth to take place, my friend, first of all, I would say this. You must be a believer. You must come to Christ. You must yourself transfer your trust from trying to be a better person and trying to gain acceptance before God by trying to improve yourself or do things you think that will please God is to stop all that nonsense and to say, I am desperately in need of a Savior. I cannot save myself. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins. I come and trust Him with all my heart. And that was what these believers had done through the power of God working their hearts, understanding the weight of their sin, being convicted, knowing that they needed a Savior. But having had that take place in their hearts in order for growth to take place, secondly, we must repeatedly repeatedly address the issues of our sinful, unbelieving hearts. Peter called his readers out for having resentful hearts or for behaving in, in phony ways with each other. They're fake with each other. They're living like hypocrites. And I believe that what was happening there was they were beginning to, to live out on their outward life the reflection of what they were thinking in their minds, what was going on in their hearts. And it was something like this. I'm just supposing here this kind of worldly thinking they had fallen into. They were probably thinking things like this. I deserve better than what I'm getting right now in my life. How dare they treat me like this? How dare that person treat me like that? I cannot be joyful, they must have been saying to themselves. I can't be joyful unless I get the respect I deserve. And so their whole joy is dependent on other people responding to them in a certain way they think they deserve. Or they may have thought this. Since I base my worth and value as a person on what other people think of me, then it's okay for me to act one way with my Christian friends and I'll act an entirely different way with my, un my unbelieving friends and there's nothing wrong with that. So get over it. Don't make a big deal of it. That's the kind of worldly thinking that was beginning to to occupy their minds. Why? They had gotten away from the preciousness of the gospel and of Christ. They were trying to find their significance in other people or in themselves. If we want to move forward in spiritual maturity, we must tackle the weeds of sinful fruit that survive in our hearts. We need to pull some weeds. Those weeds are bearing witness to the deeper issues of what we're trusting in other than Christ, what we're cherishing more than Christ and the gospel. And by far, the majority of the time, we are cherishing other people and what they can get us or other things or other many other lists of things that we cherish other than the gospel, other than Christ. They begin to preoccupy our hearts. They become idols that are in our hearts. And we treasure those more than we treasure Christ. It's subtle. But we've got to deal with those. The underlying root issues of an idolatrous heart is oftentimes keeping us from advancing in our spiritual lives. So in order to advance spiritually in 2014, one of the things that we can do, best do, is to stop using our difficult circumstances 
or to stop using busyness as an excuse for our lack of growth as a Christian. You hear me? Too many times we say, oh, I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to read the Word. I'm too busy to be involved in other people's lives in some ministry area. I'm too busy to memorize Scripture. Or if you knew how bad my life was, there's no way I can do this or that or whatever. We use that as an excuse. What's that saying? It's saying that something else is occupying my heart. Something else is more important to me at this moment than this, which is the gospel in Christ and living for him. So Peter says this, put aside all known sin. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a real hopeful word for 2014. My friend, let me tell you something. If you want to see growth, you've got to take the time to do an internal review of what's going on in your heart, to ask yourself some questions. And I would just say this. I would just say this as earnestly as I can as a pastor. I read articles. I try to stay up with what's going on in our culture as best I can. And I'm reading again and again. So many of our young people are technologically connected. They are just, they have their technology with them all the time, and that's their life in many great ways. And I'm reading more and more that of wherever pornography is being viewed, it's being viewed on telephones, cell phones. It's being viewed probably 50% of the time on pads, some type of iPads or tablets. If we think we've solved the problems of the sin of pornography and the impurity of our minds and our passions of our heart by just saying, well, I'm just going to put the family computer right in the middle of the den, it's not going to solve the problem, folks. If your phone, if your tablet is leading you into sin on a regular basis and you're not finding victory, but my friend, get rid of that phone. Get another service. Get a cheap phone. You can't do access those things. You've got to take steps in your life to deal with the sin of your life. You're not going to move forward and grow as a Christian. It will strangle you. As weeds, it will crowd out. The word of God's working in your heart. I'm passionately pleading with you. I know what it is to struggle. We all struggle on various, various things. I think of other people who, if they're more concerned about your image on Facebook or your Twitter account, and how many people are looking at what you're posting and who take interest in your photos or your videos that you posted, and that's the passion of your life, and you're living for that. My friend, if that is more important to you than growing and shaping into the image of Christ, I say to you, that is something you've got to pull the weed out of your heart. That's, something, that's an idol. I'm not saying get off Facebook. I'm not saying all that stuff is wrong. I'm saying if that is hindering your growth spiritually, you need to address it. You need to address it. Some of us have hearts. You can't see this on the outside. Some of us have hearts that are filled with greed and envy, we are so caught up in what somebody else has. Somebody else is a friend of somebody, and that person has a friend with somebody, and I'm not a friend with that. Oh, my word. Your heart is so filled with lack of contentment and bitterness, and you're so greedy and envy for what other people have. Other people are, just, are so focused on being successful, they have no longer a desire for sanctification. That's the passion of their heart. I just want to be successful. I'm not saying success is bad. I'm not saying having friends is bad. I'm saying, where is the area of sin that's evidencing itself in your heart? 
You need to address it. Confront it. Confess it. Acknowledge it to God. Say, Lord, I've turned from this. This is not what I want in my life. I want to move toward Christ-likeness. I want to grow. I don't want to be stuck where I am. It starts there, my friend. It starts there. And the more you look at Christ, the one who redeemed you, not with some, as I say again, a swipe of a credit card. He redeemed you with his blood, his life poured out for you. You say, is it worth giving up these things? Yes. Yes, the Christ is so much more valuable than that. We'll talk more about that in a minute. First step of spiritual growth, the year ahead, is to admit we need a Savior. <laughs> That's what Peter's saying. He said, don't you realize? You look at your heart and say, man, I need a Savior. i got all kinds of issues going on in my heart. In view of the fact that Christ redeemed us, verse 118, I've got to, you've got to see that verse as anchored to this therefore of chapter 2, verse 1. The redemption of Christ therefore leads us into thinking about, oh, how loved I am by Christ. Therefore, I want to know him more. And because I am a child of God, not because I'm trying to gain acceptance, I am a child of God. Therefore, I have a longing to be more like Christ because I've already received his grace and mercy in the gospel. So he calls us to admit that our hearts are not on the same page with God and we need to remove all of those known obstacles to growing closer and more intimate to Christ. Whew, could have preached a whole sermon on that one thing. I want to move on to chapter, number, point number two. Understand the dynamics of spiritual growth. Understand the dynamics of spiritual growth. You know, when you think about a pre-born baby, they spend nine months in a watery, lightless, dark place in the inner sanctum of a womb. And they receive automatic nourishment. It just happens. Umbilical cord. It's amazing. Everything that baby needs during those nine months of maturity, development. But after that baby's born, what do they do? Soon that baby comes out, and here comes the cutting of the umbilical cord. And now the whole system changes. The child now must receive nourishment in some different way. And now the parents are on the spot. And now their responsibility is to provide that appropriate nourishment as needed. You can't give a child a year's worth of nourishment on one day. Doesn't work. And so mother's milk, I'm told, as I read again the research, is the best nutrition for that baby. That milk contains all sorts of, just not only basic nutrition, but it also includes all sorts of vitamins, and nutrients that the baby needs the first six months of life. And that that milk is packed with disease-fighting substances that protect that baby from all sorts of illnesses that come from the mother who has already built up all these immunities. She's passing them right on to her baby. It is amazing. It is incredible. It's God's design. I'm not trying to promote nursing here. I'm just talking about the dynamics. I'm talking about the dynamics of... Nutrition, that's what I'm trying to focus on here for a baby. Now, spiritually speaking, growth will never take place in a believer unless that believer is being fed nourishing spiritual food. And what is that best food? What is the best possible food that can bring us spiritual nourishment so that we might grow and become mature? And the answer is, Jesus said, John 17, 17, 
Sanctify my disciples. Sanctify means set them apart and make them holy. Bring them into full maturity. Sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is truth. That is the best way to see spiritual maturity take place in your life. It's to have the truth of God begun to be applied, lived out, and uh, learned. And so scripture is essential for a believer to become like Christ. Sanctification involves the process of renewing our thoughts. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, right? Renewing our minds. And it also involves through the process of equipping us through the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15, 16, 17, right? It's the scriptures that bring us to faith. It's the scriptures that equip us then with doctrine and teaching and and correction, all those things, to make us adequate, equipped for every good work. What's going to equip you for every good work? It's not what you're reading online unless it's biblical truth. So I answer the question, why is the Bible then a good, nutritious source of spiritual food? Well, Hebrews 4 tells us that the scriptures are alive and active. The scriptures are not just superficial. They don't just deal with the external things of our lives. The scriptures deal and reveal the innermost ways in which our hearts work. They deal, deal down the level of heart level of our motives and our inner thought life. It is Psalm 19 tells us that the Bible restores our souls. How many of us are longing for a soul that's restored? Back the way God designed us to be. It is the scripture that makes us wise, brings joy to our hearts. It is scripture that illumines our spiritual perception that we can see clearly from a spiritual point of view what is important in life. What is God doing in the world? What's really significant? It's the word of God that provides essential warnings that exposes our hidden faults. Indeed, we read Jesus' comments there in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, listen, it is the scriptures that testify of me. The scriptures point us to Christ. They teach us of Christ. They help us understand the glories of Christ and the gospel. That is why we're reading the scriptures, because that is the nourishment we need for our souls. Therefore, those who understood the scriptures and how valuable they were, they are worth more than gold. You know what gold is selling for now? I don't even know. I didn't even look it up. It's over $1,000 an ounce. Imagine if you had all the gold in Fort Knox where they store bars and bars, hundreds, thousands of these bars in these vaults deep down in the ground, safe places. You took all that gold. Scripture says, listen, I'll tell you something more valuable than that. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. No wonder Peter urges the believers that he's writing to in chapter 2, verse 2. You got your Bible open? 2, verse 2. He says, I'm writing you like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. I want to translate that a little bit differently. Rather than just the word long, how about the word crave? Or the word strongly desire, the unadulterated truth of God's word. Just like a healthy newborn baby has ongoing appetite for milk, so believers are to have an ongoing hunger for the word of God. That little baby 
is basically crying out every so many hours saying, I've got to have nourishment. If I don't have it, I'm going to cry louder until I get it. Because why? That baby has an, an, an instinctive kind of sense that that baby's life depends on it. Same thing is true in Scripture. Our spiritual lives depend on it. And therefore, that is why we have a deep, continuous longing for the Word of God. Matter of fact, if you look at one of the traits of a true believer, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, if you turn it around, he says it in a negative way, but if you turn around in a positive way, he says one of the evidences of a true believer is they have a love of the truth. You say, well, why don't I have more of an appetite for the Word? What's wrong with me? Well, I can't answer that question definitively. I have a couple suggestions for you to think about. One reason many of us lack an appetite for God's Word is because we have been feeding our souls spiritual junk food. Remember, you, remember when you were a kid, you used to come to the table, and uh, if you came home from school, you used to say, Mom, I want a snack. So you get a snack, and you're like, snack, a snack, a snack, a snack, a snack. Oh, it tastes good. That's what I've been wanting. And then when she brings out the green beans, right, and the squash, and the healthy stuff that you really need to put in your body, you know, milk and stuff, the dinner, you're like, ah, I'm not too hungry right now. I don't want that stuff. What happened? Because you satisfied yourself with snacky salt foods in the afternoon after school, right? So what do we have? We have the sugary drinks of the health and wealth gospel that people are constantly exposing, them to, exposing themselves to, being reminded that what? The gospel, in their twisted way of thinking, the false gospel, is that what? It's about me getting what I want from God. And so therefore I'll speak it out. And I'll declare what God must give me. And I have power to tell God what to do. That's sugary junk food, spiritually speaking. Man, it's everywhere on the television. The processed foods of a catchy songs that sometimes we listen to our Christian radio all day long. I have nothing wrong with lots of songs on the radio. They're fine. Many of them are very good, wholesome, I understand. But let me ask you something. When was the last time you listened to a song on the, on the radio that ever challenged you to repent? When did you ever listen to a song on the radio that ever said, confronted you regarding a sin in your heart? It's all what? It tends to be sort of sugary. It's sweet. It's, it, it's oh, that's nice. Oh, that's pleasant. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying sometimes that's all, we're, that's all the spiritual input we have in our life. It's just that. And it tends to also steer toward ourselves sometimes, become too focused on me, me, me. How about this? How about some of us are involved in the drive-through fast food of entertaining, polished speakers who are on TV, or we listen to them in the Internet all the time? So we like the guys who have all the clever stories, and we like all the people who are tremendous speakers and communicators, and we just le listen to those people all the time, and we never get into thinking about serious doctrinal issues and going deeper into understanding what Scripture really teaches that oftentimes are not the popular things you're hearing out there. I'm not saying stop listening to the people on the internet. I'm, there's some good stuff out there. Don't, don't hear me the wrong way, okay? Disciples of Christ, what we need is healthy, ongoing, insatiable appetite for the Word of God, unadulterated, just the way it is, just having an appetite for that. So that what? He says there in verse 2. So that you may grow in respect to salvation.
Do you ever find yourself feeling dissatisfied with where you are now in your spiritual development? Or do you find yourself saying, you know, I like the status quo. I'm not a bad place. I think I want to stay here for a while. Or as you read the word, does that make you hunger more and more and say, oh, I want to press on to know Christ, Philippians. Paul writes in Philippians. I want to move forward from where I am now. I want to know his power of his resurrection and work in my heart and life. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to be more useful for him in his kingdom. So the gospel imparts, and I think it's important to understand this, the gospel imparts a new nature, which leads then to a logical and natural change of what's going on inside. So we have an appetite for the Word of God. If you don't have an appetite for the Word of God, and you never have had an appetite, and you don't ever read the Word of God, you need to ask yourself, am I a believer? It's not a bad question to ask yourself, you know. 2 Corinthians says that, last chapter of 2 Corinthians says, examine your heart, see if you're, see if you're in the faith. If you don't have any appetite, you never read the Word of God, you've got to say to yourself, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Now, I'm not saying that that is a conclusive result, but I am saying this. If your new nature has brought about the change of what your heart is like, then one of the evidences of that is that you have a hunger for the Word of God. You grow in the year of come. If we're going to grow, all of us need to feed our souls on the Christ-exalting, cross-embracing, resurrection-empowering, and grace-celebrating gospel of Jesus Christ. We feed our souls on that, my friend. You're going to grow. You're going to grow. Does your heart crave the Word of God? Do you again and again and again discover for yourself how wonderful Christ is in the pages of Scripture? Do you find yourself again and again finding how wonderful your salvation is? How wonderful is the kingdom of God and the promises of what's going to happen someday? Do you find yourself having any way that you, God's truth satisfies the hungering and thirsting of your soul? Do you ever find the Scriptures doing that for you? Wouldn't that be a great goal for the year ahead? Lord, satisfy my soul with what I learn of you in the pages of Scripture. Every parent knows that a child cannot thrive and cannot grow physically by eating a diet that only consists of Skittles and animal crackers. It ain't going to happen. That child will be sickly, anemic, and quite frail. Those children need vitamins, they need nutrients, which provide building blocks, proteins, energy, chemicals, bringing about cell multiplication, all that kind of stuff. Many of us, I believe, are stunted in our spiritual growth because we assume that we can grow apart from being personally and deeply involved and impacted by the Word of God. You're waiting on me as the preacher. You're waiting on somebody you listen to on the Internet. You're waiting on something else outside of you to feed you rather than feeding yourself from the Word of God. So you say, why do I ever grow? Well, I'd start right there too. That's a good place to think. That's why Peter says, long for the unadulterated, the pure milk of the word. Just this morning, I was reading 
through the book of 1 Timothy, and I'll talk about why I did that today, but anyway, I'm reading through the whole book of 1 Timothy, and as I'm reading through, jumps right off the page in light of the sermon, 1 Timothy 4.6. Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, continually being nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. There's the word nourishing. I'm thinking, oh, what a great point. What a great verse to add to what we're talking about here. What I need in my life, Lord, is I keep needing to be nourished in your word. And so I just turned to the Lord and said, Lord, that's what I need. It's not just for them. I need this in my life every day, today and throughout all of 2014. All right, listen, um, there's so much more I could say there. I just want to move quickly now to talk about so what. Where do we go with this? I lay this heavy thing on us. We need to hear it every so often. I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty, and I'm not here to give you a simple little technique that if you check it off the little boxes, we'll say, oh, you've arrived, and that's growth. I'm not trying to suggest that at all to you. I'm just at this point trying to say, how do I put into, how to put into practice what we've been talking about? How, where do we go from here in a practical way? Okay, that's what I'm going to try to talk about, point number three. Develop a healthy habits that promote spiritual growth. Point number three. Healthy habits that promote spiritual growth. I want to challenge all of us, myself included, that we want habits in our lives going forward here that are not rooted in legalism. That's not what I'm trying to suggest here. So if you're hearing that, you walk away saying, oh, I feel like I'm so failure. Oh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that you're going to earn spiritual brownie points if you do any or some of the things I'm saying to you. Don't hear me say that either. What I'm saying to you is that habits, I hope, as you develop them in your life, you're going to find these to be well-traveled paths that lead you up into greater heights of holiness, into greater heights of enjoyment of God and growth in grace. Those are the things that you see after the long period of trying to make this something that becomes a part of your life as a habit, a good habit. Let me begin then urging you to, first of all then, Find a place where you can find spiritual solitude. Spiritual solitude. Solitude. Where in the world do you find that in today's world? Well, you've got to look for it. First chapter of Mark's Gospel, we read Jesus there, is being approached by countless people, just coming at him with one thing after another, and even when you think the day's done, here comes somebody else saying, hey, I've got a sick mother-in-law, can you help me out here? He's got people thronging all over him, and he's worn out, I'm sure. And what do we read about the next day? In order to sustain himself for ministry, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, developed what? Holy habits. And look what he says in John, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, and we read this verse. Jesus got up, he left the house, he went away to a secluded place in the early morning while it was still dark. Boy, there's so much in that verse. He left the house where other people were. It's early in the morning. He goes away to a secluded place. He had to look for it. He had to go and find it somewhere. And for most of us, solitude and seclusion are not a normative experience in your life. We are used to noise. We are used to commotion. We are used to entertainment. We are used to things that are constantly stimulating our mind and our eyes. And we are people who have to work hard at finding and being intentional to find spiritual solitude. You say, well, I got two small kids, I got three kids, I got 
you know, I got all these things I'm doing. I've got a busy job, a commute, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I understand all those things. I challenge you to think about Jesus again and say to yourself, that man had more things to do you'll ever have on your list of to-do things. You have to find a place where you live or where you work. Some of you have an office. You can close your door. Go in early and close that door. Nobody's around. You can listen and be quiet before you're on your work time, okay? I'm not saying punch in and then spend an hour reading the Word, okay? I'm not saying that. If you heard me say that, you weren't listening. That's not what I said. You can, it's work maybe, or you can also go outside. You say, oh, it's too cold. I understand it is cold. But I go outside anyway, wrap up, and I go outside because I'm away from cell phones, from people, from computers, from TV, from anything, from people around me, whatever. I just want to be alone. And it gets better in the summertime because the sun's up like 5.15 in the morning. And there's nobody out at 5 in the morning. I'm telling you, there's not. It's beautiful. You see the sunrise at night now, about 7.30, sun's coming up. Anyway, okay, I digress. The point is this. You've got to get away from the incessant distractions, the noise of a cluttered life that so many of us have. That's one of our real problems. God can't get a hold of you and speak to you because you've got things plugged in your ears or you've got your long to-do list, you're looking at the TV, you've got kids screaming, crying, whatever. Yep, phone's ringing, whatever texting people all the time. Get rid of your gadgets, turn them off, and get to a place where you have quiet in your life, just for a short period of every day. In biblical times and modern times, believers have found that one of the few times you can find quietness and diminished distractions is in the early hours of the morning. You say, oh, don't go there, please. Don't lay that burden on me. I'm just telling you, it works. It works. You say, it doesn't work for me. Okay, then you're not a morning person. Find your own time. Maybe 12 midnight's good for you. Doesn't work for me. My deep prayer time goes into what? Deep sleep time. So you figure out what works for you. But guess what? For some of us, if we were to say, I'm going to go to bed a half an hour earlier, you could get up, what, half hour earlier? Still haven't lost any sleep. Turn that TV off at 10 o'clock at night. Guess what? You guys just found yourself some time. Go to bed right then, and you got yourself what? You can wake up earlier and still not lose all that sleep. And that's how most of the people in earlier years used to do it. They didn't stay up watching entertainment and stuff all kinds of hours of night. They went to bed when it went dark. So guess what? They're up at wee hours in the morning, spending tons of time. Okay, I digress again. Letter B. Find your quiet time, then B. Read the word yourself every day. Not in a legalistic way. Don't feel condemned because you missed it one day. Don't hear me saying that. I'm just saying, try not to just read a devotional book. Try not just to read the daily bread. Oh, I said that. Yes, I know. It's good. It's a helpful thing to read. But I'm telling you, I'm challenging you. They can be helpful, and they are helpful. But read the Word. Read the Bible for yourself. Read the Scriptures to find nourishment for your own soul. Read it aloud. That will help you. Read it thoughtfully with your mind engaged. Read it so you can be encouraged and challenged and warned and reminded and edified, instructed and pointed to Christ. And I would also suggest that you read it with a plan in mind. And that's why we put in your bulletin microscop microscopically printed 
the tiny one-year plan of reading through the Bible. Now, this is heavy-duty, folks. This is a heavy-duty, long-range reading plan. For many of us, this is like the Marine. This is like the super tough approach. But this is the guy named uh, Murray McShane. He came up with the idea of reading through different portions of the Word of God. He even did it so you read through the New Testament twice. I'm not expecting you to do that. Just start, start at the beginning and just take your time and make it through. It might take you two years. It might take you three years. You still have made progress. So that's, that's in print. There's also ones online at our website, newvillagechurch.net, under resources. There are four reading plans online, different approaches of what you can read the Bible every day. And then there are things like this, MacArthur Bible Daily, sorry, MacArthur Daily Bible with readings for every day divided up for you with some little thoughtful comments at the end of that or some have found helpful the seasons of reflection which you read through the entire bible has a reading from old testament reading from new testament and then a reading from the psalms and proverbs every day sort of the same for macarthur as well then there's another series called for the love of god and that's put out again by d.a carson the uh, new testament professor and he has you reading through readings from Old Testament, New Testament, and then he'll make a comment on one of those readings, trying to help you understand some portion and the significance of what you just read. The point is this. Even if you get behind and you don't follow it, suppose you're behind by three weeks. So what? Shake that off. Say that I'm not here to do a race with somebody. I'm not here to be graded. I'm here to know Christ in the Scriptures. So I'm just going to press on to where I was last time. Say, Lord, I'm going to get back into this. Thanks for being patient with me. I got a little distracted there. Okay, it's not a big deal. You don't have to beat yourself up. But having a plan keeps you in the Word, keeps you reading, so you don't just go to your favorite psalm every time you have a problem, and that's all you ever do in the Word. You read, Jesus wept. Yeah, I'm reaping. I got a rough life. It's terrible out there. Get a little deeper than that, okay? So read the Word. Expand your horizons. Another idea is to suggest that you read for depth of understanding. Depth of understanding. That's a whole other approach. That is to say, and, and, and it's the link is in your notes in the back of the sheet. The link says, take a book of the Bible and read through that book every day. You say, oh, don't, don't pick Genesis. You know, start with some New Testament epistle and say, I'm going to read that book through the whole thing in one sitting every day. And I'm going to just master that book. I'm going to think about those truths. I'm going to see things I've never seen before because I really understand and understand. I've seen it. I've read it so carefully. I see insights I've never seen before. You master that. That's what Tim is doing with our young people now. They've been doing that for a number of months. A suggestion, and you can read that blog on, online, and you can take that as a suggestion if you want to take that approach. But you read slower and for more understanding at a slower pace. Read it in a way that you see things and take notes on what you see. And here's my other thing, real quickly. Read it prayerfully. Read it prayerfully. Pray before you read. Say, Lord, give me insight. Help me see Christ in this passage. Help me, Lord, to, to have a heart that will really hear it and listen to what you're saying. Pray over what you read. So that as you're reading, it, you say, Lord, thank you for showing that to me. This is an area I've got to deal with in my life. You just hit me between the eyes of this sin. I've got... Thank you for that. Thank you for the reminder of what Christ is, whatever it is. Pray about the word as you're reading it. And then you come to a promise, you thank God for it. Thank you, Lord, this is true. You've said this in your word. You're faithful. Thank you for that. You're praying as you're reading the word. You're talking to God who is talking to you in the word. 
You can pray about other people that God brings to your mind as you read. I've thought about that today. I thought, boy, I had somebody come to my mind as I was reading a passage of Scripture. Lord, this is, this is true for this person. I'm praying for them. Confess to God any sins are exposed that you've, had, that you've been reading in the Word. Anyway. Uh, and use the passage that you've read sometimes as a pattern for prayer. You can, you can sometimes just read the passage and say, Lord, I'm praying that you might help me realize that I'm not alone, that you're faithful, that you'll provide a means of escape, that I might be able to stand up. And Thank you, Lord, you're able to do that. You're reading Scripture and you're praying it right back to God. He loves it when we do that. And then record it in a journal is oftentimes helpful. You don't have to do the journal, but it helps. Lastly, this. Reflect upon what you've read and review what you've read. How many of you have seen the infomercial? I have to confess that I, I, every so often I'll watch one. Uh, they have an infomercial where they have this sort of oven or something, and, and so they put the piece of meat in there, they close the thing up, and they say this. They say, set it and forget it. Right? Just put it in there, turn the button on, don't worry about it. And sometimes that's how we read the Word. It's like, we read it, and we forget it. Well, remember what I read this morning. It's possible, it does happen, we've got lots of stuff going on in our minds. Here's the thing. I encourage you to review in your mind what you've read earlier in the day. When you have a moment when you're driving in the car, your brain can go to all kinds of directions. What was I reading in the Word today? You say, if I, if I wait and meditate the, at the nighttime, guess what? You don't have anything you've been thinking about all day. It's another problem. So if you do it early in the day, then you can keep reviewing it during the day. That's also helpful. And then here's another thing. Share what you've learned with somebody else that day. Can you share it with somebody? Anybody. And then reread those verses maybe at night. Zero in on the verse that came to you earlier in the day. Something you can really hang on to that will help you. Okay, let me just conclude with this. James 1.25. James 1.25 says this. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. May that be true of us in 2014. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been using this passage in my own life, Lord, this past week. I thank you for challenging me to get back into some patterns that I've been letting slip for a while. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help all of us follow the leading of the Spirit of God and what he would want us to be pursuing, what kind of habits we can be developing, what kind of things we need to let go of and lay aside and deal with and examine the idols of our hearts. And Lord, I just pray that you, by your Spirit, would you create within us a hungering and an appetite and an insatiable desire, Lord, for your word, that we would be nourished in our souls as we feed our souls truths about Christ in the gospel day after day after day. And for those, Lord, who truly are in a place where it's difficult for them to read or it's difficult to find time literally in their busy schedules, I pray, Lord, you would help them find some way that they can get the word into their hearts and lives. And the rest of us, Lord, help us to take steps to create that time and to be serious about pursuing you and feeding our souls with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to prepare now.